I'm going to quickly throw it out there. I'm, this isn't my answer, but I'm just going to say that Zip Zap Boying is the best game. You can do whatever you like with it. It's adaptable. It's great for any age group. And it's, you know, you can do, it's great. Um, so the show finished at like, I don't know, 10. And I had a deadline for like half 11 to get it in. And that was the scariest thing ever. I mean, I remember just sitting on my phone on my, um, <laughs> I was sending, sending Facebook messages to myself writing this review. Perry and Gemma Arterton where she says that she creamed in her knickers. <laughs> At Laurence Olivier, how iconic is that? I actually think this is gonna be more stressful than our usual ones because we normally facilitate conversations with our amazing guests. Whereas as this is just us two, I feel like I need to say really clever things. So I'm actually quite nervous that I'm gonna be seen as somebody who knows absolutely nothing. Yeah, no, I know what you, yeah. No, I know what you mean. Um, no one's going to listen to this episode, though, so it's fine. Hi, everybody. Um, we've decided. <laughs> oh, this is so difficult because there's no there's no script or or like well, like structure. I guess would be a better word. Um, we have decided, if you've made it this far, to do a little bonus episode at the end of this series, just a nice little recap of of the lovely things that we. Um, talked about with our guests and we maybe wanted to chat about a bit more or also maybe talk about oh I hate it I don't want to sound um vain but maybe talk about ourselves because we're also early career creatives um I'm gonna hate that when I listen back to that when I edit that later um yeah so this is that bonus episode let us know what you think we've often tried to keep our own like voices out of the episodes a little bit um like obviously we've we've chipped in a little bit um, but there's definitely been times when, you know, we've had views or experiences or whatever. And then a few people have said to us that they would like a bit more of our own. They like the ones that are a bit more conversationally, conversational. Um, so that is us. This is us. Having this a is, conversation. This is, this is, yeah, having a conversation. Giving <laughs> the fans what they want. <laughs> Even though we both hate the sounds of our own voices. Fans. I don't think we have any. I don't th- I don't think even my family listened to this. Like when I first started telling them that we were doing it, they were so interested with the first episode and the trailer. My mum was listening. Um, and then I my think it just petered like, off. They were like, oh no. They like are happy no. for me when I tell them that we've like hit a download achievement. But but that's kind of, you know. I yeah, 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 same. Think, actually, no, my mum did listen to the trailer and did laugh. My mum did that as well. Well, I had to make her listen to it. She doesn't really do technology and stuff. So she doesn't have Spotify or anything like that. So she wouldn't be able to listen to it herself. So I just kind of shoved my phone in her face and was like, listen to this trailer. Aren't we great? Someone someone said after the trailer that it sounded like someone had like recorded you and me just like having a chat at a bar, which I thought was quite nice. I was like, those are nice. That's a nice vibe. I can't even remember what a bar is. I don't think I've ever been to one. Maybe maybe it's just us at the pub, you know. To be fair, they might have said pub. I might have just I might have just synonymized. I feel like our our vibe is definitely more a pub or like in a having a drink <laughs> in the theatre foyer. Yeah, definitely not like bar like Soho Soho bar on a Saturday night. I don't think I've ever done. I actually don't think I've ever been. No, I must have been in a bar in a in Soho at Saturday night at some point. I'm sure, but I'm just de- yeah. I couldn't tell you when. But it's not it's not one of my regular hobbies. And if that is your regular hobby, dear listener, that is absolutely fine. But um, it is not for me. Maybe maybe you're on your way to a bar right now, listening to us. Maybe you're maybe you're maybe this is your like your like drunk ride home podcast. Can you imagine being in the Uber? Turn it up. <laughs> 
It's like, give me the aux cord and then um, you just play a podcast. Maybe we should make a meme out of that. <laughs> I was thinking, is it a good idea to like have a chat about why we made the podcast? Because I feel like we didn't actually... We just jumped in. We didn't really like... Do... Maybe no one wants to know but or no one cares, but... I feel like we should. I feel like it would give us some closure. Yeah. Because from... Correct me if I'm wrong, but if I my memory serves me right... Why? What happened? We were chatting about. I think that who said it first. So basically, I think both of us listen to podcasts quite regularly anyway, and have always been aware of the sphere. I didn't really until lockdown started. Like I used to listen to the occasional podcast, but it was when lockdown hit that I started really enjoying going for walks and listening to a podcast. Yeah, and then our friend Connor started his Glee Cap podcast, which I am kind of co-producer of and have been on several episodes. And I think I was chatting about that with you, Joseph. I don't know why I said your name. You're the only person I'm speaking to. But uh, we we were chatting about it, I think, because you were listening to the Glee Cap podcast and, and stuff too. And I think we both mentioned how, like, it's something we'd like to do, but we don't really know what it would yes. be about. And I've just remembered as well, because it was lockdown and I really wanted to make some theatre, I was looking into doing an, a radio type, a radio play. Yeah. So that was what... So I, it was kind of on my mind. I think I was really interested in where I felt there was like a gap in the podcast market uh, um, in terms of a lot of the theatre podcasts were with established creative professionals um, or at least the ones that I listen to. Well, yeah, were. which which is which is really great, obviously, but um, we do not have those connections. <laughs> we do. but But also I think I was really interested in doing something that gave the voice to like well, what we're doing, early career creatives. Um, and at the same time, I remember, I think I got this the right way around, that you were saying that it would be cool to have a podcast that interviewed people that didn't just have, like, writers, directors, actors who seem to be the people that get the most airtime. Or was it the other way around? Did you say the No, no, no. I, yeah, you, I you, you said the emerging career thing. And I said yeah. that if I did one, I would definitely want to talk to people that weren't just actor, writer, directors, which I think I think would have ended up being early career people anyway, purely because of who who I know and who we know. It, it Yeah. So we kind of moulded the two together. And I think it's given us a really conscious effort, though, to try and include people specifically who don't have like I don't think we've I don't think we've really had anyone on the podcast, maybe one or two people who just do one type of thing. Um, so apart, yeah, we've had a couple, but like everyone, the majority of people that we've had are like multi-disciplinary or or have a have a different kind of approaches into the work that they the way that they are a theatre maker. Yeah, for sure, and I and I think that um, I think that is such a um like a common thing in the industry, particularly nowadays, I think you have to be multi, multi-skilled, especially because now I think is, is the time of people making their own work rather than just sitting waiting to be cast or waiting to be to be hired. So it, it makes sense to be multi-skilled and to be able to do more than one thing. Yeah, so that's, I guess that's why we, that's why we, um, we made the podcast. And particularly at the moment, I think early career people like, there's just not much happening at the moment, is there? So it feels like a really tricky... Yeah. And I, and I feel like when we listen to these podcasts with the amazing established people, they're often 
when they talk about how they got started, that landscape is so different to now. So it isn't necessarily helpful to young listeners or um, early career listeners, if that makes sense, because the opportunities in the landscape is, is so different now, I think. Yeah. And I guess you just forget things as well, don't you? You forget exactly how sometimes you ask someone who's a bit established how they got started and they seem to kind of blur over the bit like the first five years where you're like no that's the bit I I need to know exactly step by step how you got into that rehearsal room or how you got that job or how you did what whatever you did because that's the thing that a lot of I think early career people uh like I, I remember I was in a workshop about I don't know a year ago and um I think it was a workshop on assistant directing um and actually this is a question that's come up a few times in workshops I've done and someone was like you know they were talking about getting in touch with directors or getting in touch with designers or whoever it is you want to get in touch with and someone was like how do you get those opportunities how do you get in touch with people and the person running the workshop was like you just email them and the whole room was just like oh you're allowed to do that you can just do that yeah I haven't thought about that and it was it was this moment of me just being like oh that's like there's no like secret like secret you know club you have to be part of I mean maybe there is and I don't know about it um but getting those early um early jobs in your career is sometimes just about banging on doors and emailing people and 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 I think that when people are a bit more established they don't necessarily tell you that bit they just tell you the bit where they got the job and were working yeah definitely definitely yeah so that yeah that's why we started the podcast and we think it's it's been i think it's been going all right i we've we've got a huge list of people we would love to talk to and it's growing literally every day um so i don't think we're gonna stop (laughs) and if you are listening and you've got a job that is maybe a little bit more like unusual as an early career theater maker um then definitely get in touch because you know that list can just keep on keep on growing i think yeah we were both aware that it's very easy to get a list together of actors directors and writers because they are a bit more high profile i think and because so much of you know a bit more vocal on twitter or that you know their names are attached to projects so um yeah so anyone that's got a bit more of an unusual job maybe you're a i don't even know maybe <laughs> are you like a fight coordinator yeah, or like, like do oh, you do yeah. special i'd, I'd love, love to, to talk to people that do special effects. special effects or like uh wigs you know, because like that's a yes. specific job. Like How a do you get into that? Yeah, or oh, dresser. Yeah, if you're listening, or anyone that's actually early career in the West End. And also, like one of my, I don't say one of my favorite episodes because they were all my favorite. But <laughs> <laughs> that's what they tell you when you're a teacher. They're like, you can't have favorites. They all have to be your favorites. Um, but something that was really nice about the episode that we did with Ellie. Um, which was episode three, if I remember correctly. Um, so Ellie, who works in marketing at Knee High, I think she's the only person that we've had on that is not in a um, who who is in a, an office job essentially, or is in like mm-hmm. a, more of a kind of administrative administrative job. Yeah. And it was it was just so lovely having that kind of like that kind of insight. Um, and so I know that we'd be really keen to have people on who maybe work in fundraising and development or maybe you're an early career I don't know theatre financier (laughs) is this a good time to ask Daniela what do you do what do you do what do I do 
So I am currently a sales and marketing assistant at What's On Stage. Um, and I'm also a reviewer for What's On Stage, but that's kind of separate to my job at What's On Stage, if that makes sense. I was doing that beforehand. So yeah, I do sales and marketing. We help to advertise shows, so lots of social media things, um, sending out emails. Yeah, we keep in contact with all the different marketing agencies who run shows across London. Actually, across the UK, we do a lot of stuff with like Chichester and places like that to make sure that we can help sell tickets and make sure you can all see these great shows. And, you know, you're going to get the same treatment as everyone else. How did you get into that job? Because, so, you know, for those who don't know, Dalia and I lived together for um, two years and the second year of that was um, Daniela's last year at uni and my second year. So I was living with you when you were in that horrible period between graduation and, like, trying to get a job and yeah like you didn't I think you know you didn't just roll into that role at Watson's stage, <laughs> did you? absolutely not yeah so I graduated um in July 2018 um and that was when we were going into our second year of living together um and up until December I was working in retail and and as a barista so I didn't just roll up on the red carpet and was like hello arts world I'm here it was hard. It was really tough. I went for a lot of interviews. I cried a lot. And you and you did. I remember you 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 had like loads where you got through to like the final, like the final like group or like the final. Yeah, you got to the final two at one point. Yeah, that happened for for one one interview. Um, that was the interview where I got sent to Somerset House, and I got there, and yes. I was like, "Where are you?" And they were like, "Oh, did we say Somerset House? We meet meant." I don't know, German Street, I think it was, or something. And I was like, oh. And they were like, can you can you get an Uber to us? And I was like, okay, downloading the Uber app. Have never used Uber myself before on my phone. And I was also wearing new shoes and I had a blister on the back foot. Anyway. so stressful. Like yeah. job interviews are stressful enough. You just don't need that. And I was down to the last two for that. And I didn't get that. No idea why. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, it, it, it was hard. But um, then I got a job at another company called Seat Plan. And that was good. That was a really great starting point. Similar thing like marketing, content and marketing. And then and then I managed to get a job at Watson Stage because that opened. So, yeah. And here I am. One of the, the things that I talk to a lot of uh, people about who've just graduated is there's a thing that a lot of job um, descriptions will say where it'll say entry-level job. And I think that a lot of people um, maybe make the mistake of, of thinking that that means, like, graduate job. And it often doesn't. It sometimes just means entry-level into that into that industry or into that profession. Because I, I remember one of the problems that... I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I remember one of the problems that you had was that a lot of the jobs you were going for that said entry-level already wanted you to have office experience... And it felt like a bit of a like catch twenty two of well, but this is an entry level job, and that yeah, I mean, you going through that made me realise that an entry level job doesn't mean brand new. It means actually they want you to already have had some kind of off an office experience is like because they just want someone that's worked in an office before that's had that experience of I don't know picking up the phone, answering emails, and and I had I had worked in an office a few. Uh, for a short time when I was at university actually and um, I did like a little internship but it maybe wasn't the type of office experience that they wanted if that makes sense like it was in an office but I wasn't necessarily answering the phone or doing things like that so 
Yeah, for sure. I hadn't worked in an office. I was too busy making money working retail, like trying to pay my rent. <laughs> and then what about the, so what about the reviewing stuff? Where did that start? Um, How did reviewing start? So it's really funny actually, because, oh my God, why do I feel like I'm on the Graham Norton show, honestly? Because I'm basically a, 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 an English Graham Norton. No, I feel like I'm on Life Stories or something. Please, please I'd much rather be Graham Norton than Pierce Morgan. <laughs> yeah, please yeah, I didn't want to mention him. I just, I just meant like, uh, well, who's the other guy that does it? Is it Michael Parkinson? Did he, did he do that sort of thing? Anyways, whatever. Yeah. Um, well, when I was younger, I did. I'm now sorry. I'm now thinking who I would like to be if I am being compared to like an interviewer. I don't know. Who would I, I like to know. be? Graham Norton's a good one. I think, I like he, I think he's the king favorite. of chat shows, including the American ones yeah. that I've seen. Yes. I love... Yeah. I'm sorry, but who puts Dot Cotton... Not Dot... What's her real name? June Brown and Lady Gaga <laughs> together. Do you know what I mean? What an iconic yeah, sofa. Genius. I've watched yeah. that episode so many times. And also, and also my other favourite is um, Will I Am and Miriam Margulies. Is that... It's... Because they're just is like... Is that the one also where Miriam Margulies is with Dominic Cooper and she's like, I hated Mamma Mia. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. I'm confusing now all of her. Because there's the one where she's with Matthew Perry and Gemma Arterton. <gasps> where she says that she creamed in her knickers. At Laurence Olivier. <laughs> How iconic is that? Yeah. Um, but no, great. But great. great. I think a lot of people think that TV presenting is no. easy. Or like they... It, but that's the thing. It looks easy. And you know it's hard when you see someone doing it badly. Or like when you see a really awkward TV presenter... And you're like, it's actually like Graham Norton is so good at digging really deep, but like in a way that feels, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And he comes up with these really random stories that they're all like, what? My favourite one is when he's like, Judy Dench, you have been nightclubbing. She's like, no, I haven't. And he's like, you were in, was it heaven? (laughs) And she's like, oh, yes, I was. (laughs) Well, that's what he says to Miriam Margulies. I can't remember what he says to her, but he says... Something about her being with in some situation, and she just goes, she's like, my God, things do get around. <laughs> Word does spread. If anyone hasn't already gathered, Miriam Margulies is one of my favourite people in the whole wide world. I'm just obsessed with yeah, her. Yeah, if you ever want to chat to Joseph about anything, you can either mention Miriam Margulies or The Devil Wears Prada, and you are on to a winner. De- yeah. Or theatre, I guess. Theatre, eh. In terms of other podcasts, I really recommend um, Louis Theroux, um, podcast with Miriam Margulies. It was done during lockdown, and it was one of my. Have you listened to it? Yet? I don't think I have actually. It's just, it's just fantastic. I just, and when you think that she's told all of her outrageous stories and like she's got no more, she just keeps coming up with more, and you're like, what a life you have lived, Miriam. What a life. Sorry, I went, we went off. We were talking about reviewing and getting into reviewing. I don't know how that happened, but it did. Because you, you, cause you set up a blog, didn't I you? I did. Was that your first thing? That, yeah, I set up a blog um, in the summer between first and second year of uni, like any good English and drama student does, um, you know, around the time of the blogging era. And I just started reviewing stuff that I'd seen, like, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream, at The Globe, Ember Rice's production, uh, anything that I was paying a ticket for. I was just like, I'm just going to write about it because I love theatre and... And this was, yeah, these weren't, you weren't being invited to write these. These were 
No one asked you. This was totally unsolicited. No one asked me. Nobody cared. What what kind of opinions do I have? And in lockdown, I actually read some of my early reviews. And I think I told you this. You <laughs> cringe because I cringe when I read mine. I cringe so much, but I'm not going to edit it because, you know, it's all about the process. I mean, I cringe at the one that I you know, submitted six months ago. So <laughs> definitely the ones that I submitted. But I did a review of a national theatre show. I mean, I was 18 and I wrote like... Clearly a lot of money has been spent on this production. I'm like, Daniela, are you silly? Of course it has. It's a national theatre. Um, yeah, I started blogging and then and then I did start getting invited to like kind of like small emerging companies that were at, like pub theatres and, and things like that. And I was like, oh my god, is this a thing? I can get I can get free free tickets to things. And then I fell into uh a group which I don't think really runs anymore called London Theatre Bloggers, um, where they connect London theatre bloggers with marketing and press agencies to get you tickets to stuff. So I got to go to a um to the press night of half a half a sixpence in the West End. Um I did some interviews with the cast of an American in Paris, stuff like that. Just kind of went from there and then Yeah, so I feel like I'm really waffling. I'm really sorry. No, no, no. And then and then, but that was all. That was all unpaid. Oh, and then obviously, all completely unpaid. And and actually, there's this almost running, not running gag, but like I was, I was at a, a press night. Um, I think at the beginning of the year, definitely wasn't at the middle of the year. So it, it must have been <laughs> at the beginning of the year. And I got chatting to a reviewer from another one of the the London pub review websites. I can't remember which one it was. And we ended up, and I was, I was, who was I reviewing for that night? I think I was reviewing for London Theatre One that night. Um, who also don't don't pay, but who I've really enjoyed writing for, um, and um, she was basically saying to me like, how do you, how do you know, how do you know who's like who pays? Does anyone pay? That's so true. And I was like, I actually don't really, I don't actually know. Like, I know a few. Obviously, I know that all the mainstream, um, you know, the likes of like the stage and what's on stage. Yeah, the big wigs the, kind the, of thing. Newspapers yeah. and things like that. Um, but in terms of the more kind of um you know, I don't say bloggy type websites. I guess, I guess independent, um, they mainly don't have big funding pots or anything like that, maybe. Yeah, but it's it's just, it's like, it's so, there's so much, there's such a lack of transparency, I think, about about it. Um, for sure. And and a lot of the time when, when websites say, we're looking for reviewers, they don't mention that it's unpaid, whether it is paid or unpaid. So it's such a gamble if you go for those sorts of things. But that being said... Um, like I know that I've, because I I started reviewing in two thousand and I don't know fifteen. So what happened was I I didn't ask, but I'm going to tell you. Um, I started. Um, <laughs> oh Joseph, I don't you review working... as well? Let's hear about your story into reviewing as well. <laughs> <laughs> Funny you should mention that. Um, uh, <laughs> I started. I didn't go to uni straight after school. I took a year out. Um, and started working in London, but whilst living at home. Where did you uh, work? Outside of London, I worked at a, an open, <laughs> an open roof theatre that's a, sper- a spherical nature. Is it globe shaped? Um, <laughs> it's kind of globe shaped. Yeah. Um, I worked at the Globe on a really fantastic um, kind of. They actually have renamed it recently. I think it's now called the School Leavers Scheme. When I applied for it, it was just it was just a job that you applied for that was like an assistant in the department and you had to be between the ages of 18 to 20 to right. do it. 
Um, but now, but now they've remarketed it as more of a. This is like they, I think they've marketed it as more of a. If you've left school and don't want to go to university, whereas a lot of people that did it when I did it, not everyone, but a lot of people did it and then went to uni. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but anyway, so I was working in London, but I was living at home in Hertfordshire, and it's not like I mean it's it's really weird. They feel like separate worlds, even though I can jump on the train and be at Euston in twenty minutes. But they do feel like very separate worlds. And, and on a more practical level, like door to door, it usually takes me like an hour and a half to get anywhere at least because um, of buses and, you know. So I thought, some, well, I, so I was in London anyway every day and I was like, well, I might as well make the most of it. Saw that London Theatre One, um, who are an online online blogging, reviewing criticism website, um, they were doing a call out for reviewers. I was like, well, I like theatre and I like free tickets. Um, so that sounds you know great so I, I started yeah so I started doing that really enjoyed it um and then went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival no sorry that's a lie I then went to the National Student Drama Festival on my year out which we've talked about quite a lot on this podcast yeah may- mainly in episode one with Jess actually with Je- Jess yeah and um they have like a a magazine so I right my thing with NSDF was a bit of a, not a mistake, I loved it, but I, I didn't realise that people went with groups or that people went with universities because you could just log onto the website and buy a ticket. I was having a year off and I was like, I wonder what theatre things are happening. I was like, this looks fun. So I just rocked up and then didn't, and then it wasn't until I got there that I was like, oh, everyone here is like part of a university and I'm just here on my own. Um, and every time I told like a facilitator in a workshop, they were like, well done. That's really brave. <laughs> I'm like, I mean, it's a total accident, I mean, to be honest. Because that doesn't sound patronising. Um, <laughs> do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And there was actually one workshop where they, the guy that was running the workshop got everyone to like, give me a clap. Like, applaud oh, me. Oh no. <laughs> well done on booking um, anyway, a ticket by yourself anyway, at the age what? of 18, 19. I had, I had one of the best weeks of my life. That sounds really sad, but I had one of the best weeks. It doesn't actually. I had it's one not. of the best weeks of my life. It was so exciting. I was like 18, I was like meeting strangers. I hadn't gone to uni, so I didn't have that freshers experience yet. Mm, okay. Um, so that was, you know, meeting new people and stuff. And um, and it was in Scarborough at the time, which was just a really cool, like, just like, in the, felt like it was in the middle of nowhere. Mm. Anyway, wrote a little bit that week for the magazine that is a, that, that they run. But like not because I was on the team, just because I'd, I'd get home at like two in the morning and be like, I'd, I'd, my routine was I'd make a cup of tea in the in the the B and B I was staying in, and then like write something. Oh no, that's really um, cute yeah. actually. And and I remember I got some feedback that week from Kate Wyver. We love Kate. Um, which and it was it stuck with me this feedback. It stuck with me. If I stuck with me so much, I think I have to like now go back on it and remind myself that there are times when you can break this rule. And she pointed out that my writing used a lot of superlatives. Um, you know, when you write like amazing, per- like perfect, mm. fantastic, that's a superlative, isn't it? Um, and she really challenged me on that. And that is a superlative, isn't it? I actually, I sh- God, how bad is this? We, I literally don't know. I thought superlatives when people play that game where they're like, who is the most likely to, or no, or is it like, who is the best at? That might be it because it means the highest quality or degree. Oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, to be like, this is a perfect um, set or, or, an, or Yeah, I guess. Or an exaggerated sense of praise. I think that Kate was basically like, you're spending too much time just saying that's perfect, that's amazing, rather than like analysing what's happening. And I, th- and I think um, a lot of, I've definitely done that. I think a lot of early reviewers do that. And I think that's just because, 
I don't know. I don't know if it's the way that reviews are taught in drama and English at school. You just say like, is the set good? What was the acting like? Whereas when you when you when you maybe develop more or read more, you realise that you can kind of interrogate the shows. I don't know, like the purpose a bit more rather than just saying what you saw. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, so that was, I guess, the thing I tried to get better at. The annoying thing is now, I think I now do the opposite. I think I never use superlatives, which means that I never get a pull quote out of my review. Oh my gosh, pull quotes. Working it, sorry. Oh God, I feel like I'm making it all about me. Um, working in marketing and also reviewing is very interesting because obviously I, I take pull quotes from other reviews to use in marketing and then when I review I have to remember like do not write with a pull quote in mind do not do it that is not how it's done but then when your own work is using a pull quote it's like (laughs) I'm winning the only (laughs) thing I can think where someone has actually like used my quote on a public thing is a show that I reviewed a couple of years ago that I didn't like very much and also don't think I wrote like I was, someone was saying this the other day, you look back, you can write a review and the next day immediately, sometimes I'll write a review of a show and then read the other reviews and immediately disagree with my own things that I said, because I'll be like, I'll be like, oh yeah. I'm sure I saw that on Twitter the other day about how, I don't know, about how it would be cool to to review something like a few months on from seeing it, because I think it's really hard having a deadline of like 9am the next day, especially if a show finishes at like, I don't know, half 10 or something and you've got to get home. And then it's like, do you write it when you get home? Do you write it in the morning when you're, you know, bleary eyed and you haven't had enough time to really let it set in? It's really hard. And you're just tired. Oh, so tired. I, I try and write my reviews on the way home or when I get home and you're just exhausted. But then the next morning... I don't know. I once had a deadline because it was a, um, I don't know what the word is, a show that people were really interested in in reading about, you know? It was quite, I don't want to say a big show, um, but it had was some it a, cast... Was it a controversial show? No, no, not at all, okay. not at all. Not at all. Um, it, it was a show that had some cast members that have lots of fans, so, right. the, so people would want to know as soon as they could, I suppose. Um so they could defend or praise their favourite actor, I guess. Um, so the show finished at like, I don't know, 10 and I had a deadline for like half 11 to get it in. And that was the scariest thing ever. I mean, I remember just sitting on my phone on my, um, <laughs> I was sending sending Facebook messages to myself writing this review on the train home. And that was a lot. And I look back at that and I don't hate the review, but I'm like, I wish I could have, I don't know, just been a bit more, had a bit more time with it. Yeah, yeah, it's a really hard thing. And I think reviewers do get it wrong, like, quite a lot. Because it's it's just one person's opinion. It's one person's immediate opinion. What did you think? And it's so... Yeah. But then, so this this one show I went to go and review, I really didn't like. I don't think I didn't like it. I think I didn't get it. Mm. Um, And I also had a bit of a, a really tight deadline. And so the review that I wrote for it, I don't think was of a very good quality review either. And so basically the director of that show took out something that I'd said about the show that was something like, that was a really bad thing I'd said about it and like stuck it on their website as like a, as like, as you know, in a kind of ironic way. And oh, gosh. I wouldn't have minded if it was a well-written sentence, but it, was, it wasn't <laughs> even a very well-written sentence. Oh, no. I think that's the only time anything I've written has been used as a pull quote. Um, but then I think it probably is important to say that like, I, so I, yeah, I've been doing unpaid reviewing for well four or five years now, and then eventually that has now led to a little bit of 
of paid work um doing some stuff at the edinburgh fringe festival and a couple of other a couple of other bits as it has for you as well i was gonna say we had we had a similar thing happen but like a year apart from each other right so in 2018 um i was on the team at noises off at, at nsdf and then from that was able to write for fest magazine in edinburgh and that was paid and then the following year you basically did the same thing right so yeah we're just copying each other well i'm just copying oh and we also we look we both got awards as well (laughs) we did both get awards as well which i felt really weird about i don't know i think it was because the people that had won the award that i won the year before me i was like in awe of like i was like like i think they're really fantastic writers yeah absolutely so i don't know i felt I felt part so I because I'd been it because that I think the year the year that I was officially on the team was I think my fourth third or fourth year at the festival mm. and I don't know I felt like part of the award was like a longevity thing like well done for coming for so long we probably should give you an award now <laughs> well done for from being on your own to being part of a team congratulations and also awards at NSDF are such a, a sticky thing anyway I think so. Yeah, it's. I'll tell you what. It's been really useful on funding applications and on like. It's nice to stick in a bio. Um, yeah, yeah. And also, it is a bit of an ego boost to be like, you're obviously half decent at what you do. Um, it's interesting that that something that we both started doing because we just really liked theatre and liked free tickets has turned. I think that's where the imposter syndrome for me maybe comes from. I'm like, oh, I just stumbled into this. I completely just stumbled into this, and it just. And the moment you be, it's the same with them um, because I I also I'm a, I work as a teacher quite a lot, and it's it's kind of which we'll talk with, about. <laughs> it's kind of well we don't, we don't need to, but it's kind of similar with teaching because like where the moment I started being paid for for it, it suddenly felt like work, and mm. it felt different, and it's kind of the same with reviewing. Um, it kind of the it feel I don't know why, but it feels like there's I think the reviewers that do really well don't have this problem or maybe mask it better, but. That, that when you're being paid for something, you feel like you have to be delivering at a certain quality. Um, and I think that that puts a certain pressure on. And There's, there's and, more of an yeah. expectation, for sure. Like, when I, when I was just writing for my blog, the only expectation I had was from myself, just to, like, I don't know, just, just write as well as I can, but it doesn't really matter. I didn't think, like, oh, it's going to affect shows. Whereas yeah. when I when I get paid to write for really well-known names or publications that's when I'm kind of like oh my goodness um I don't know it feels like it means more even though a blog can totally mean as much as 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 a mainstream publication can I don't know if you feel it we started reviewing for fun because we loved it and then as we got further into it we were like oh there's discourse around this there's like not arguments, but there's different points of view about how reviews should be. And then there was like, there's obviously lots of um, conversations about the star system. Should reviews just be 300 words? Should they be more creative? And you step into it and you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't realise it was so... I don't know, like, do I need to have opinions on all of these things? Because I'm yeah. in in it. And I yeah. think the worst thing for me is when you go and review a show that you maybe didn't choose to go to. Or maybe you chose to go to it, but it wasn't what you were expecting. And you come away and you're like, I have nothing that I think is useful to say about this. Yeah. I think I think when I was starting out, I was a lot better at writing about, like writing about the acting and writing about what what the set was. Or 
I didn't bite my tongue as much when I started ah, because I didn't realise that what I was writing maybe had consequences. And so I read, I read some of my early reviews the other day and I would like, I think in a fairly like fair way, but kind of t- rip stuff apart a little bit more. Whereas now I think I'm the opposite. I think I'm like, feel like I'm walking on eggshells and I'm like, oh, I don't want to ruin, A, I don't want to ruin, not that I think I'd ruin someone's career. Maybe it's a selfish thing. I've reviewed stuff before for people who I, and like given stuff what I think is a fair review, but maybe a poor, like a negative review for people that I then realise are quite big names and who I like, you're like, shit, what if I ruined a relationship potentially? <laughs> do, do you think you're, the way that you review has changed because you yourself um, are a director and you now have had your work reviewed as well and you know what it's kind of like on the other side. There's something that's really interesting that's happened over the last few years where it used to be like, you know, critics were critics and directors were directors and there was no kind of, there was no kind of crossover. Everyone had their set job and they had to stick to it. Yeah. yeah in fact, I think there's a famous story of um, Michael Billington and a director who I can't remember, like swapping roles for like a like an experiment and it just going like horribly wrong. Oh no. Um, but whereas now actually a lot of the writers that I really admire are also theatre makers. As, as a critic, I'm really excited by a movement towards kind of like embedded criticism which is right. you know where the where the critic sits in the room and is a bit more um i don't a know part, if it's more of a, a part of the process or, it's part of, yeah part of the process I, I think i'm really interested in writing stuff that talks about process over product and particularly as a theater maker i'm really excited about process um like for example i absolutely love i went to go see a show last year called the seven ages of patience at the kiln theater and it was a massive community project with a cast of like 80, 90, 100 people from the community. And what was so exciting about writing that review was that I got to really focus on the, like write a lot about the value of community theatre and collaborative mm-hmm. making with with voluntary participants. And that was, that was such an exciting way of writing. Sorry, in terms of having my work reviewed, yeah, so I had, so I directed a play called Pickland, <laughs> Um, which FA from episode two was in. Uh, we did it um, when I was a student for the London Student Drama Festival. It was written by Ailish Price, who was uh, um, someone who was a friend of mine I went to university with and is incredibly intelligent. I would hate the fact that I'm saying this because she's also the most like humble person in the world and mo- modest person. Um, but we did that play and it was at the Alcola Theatre for, for this festival. Uh, we then did it again for a festival in Watford. We had one reviewer come. He like, you know, trekked all the way here for like a 30 minute show. And he just gave the most glorious review where he like unpicked like everything, all the character choices. Like it was a really basic staging, but he just, and he reading it felt like he'd got into my head. Cause I was like, you've, you've like picked stuff out that I didn't even speak out loud, but that you've like just got, it was incredible. And then we took the show to Cat Space, which is a fantastic, not above a pub, but under a pub venue in London Bridge. They are run by a really fabulous um, team. So we took it there and we had some review reviewers come along and um, it was not negative, but it was a bit more neutral. <laughs> we had slightly more neutral yeah. responses to the show. And personally... As a director, I really, I love the reviews. And even if they're negative, it doesn't bother me because 
it that's me that's me like developing my craft and also as a reviewer i'm so aware that what one person says doesn't represent everybody um and so i it didn't bother me i don't know if that answered the question but that's i don't know but even if it didn't it was really fun to listen to you anyway so i think that's the main (laughs) thing about this episode let's just try and say some fun things We've talked about your reviewing and directing, and we've mentioned your teaching as well. I do do teaching, this is true. You do, you do. Sorry. (laughs) First silly question that I have for you is, what is your favourite drama game? Oh, it's so true. Okay, actually, right now, hang on, sorry. Okay, I'm going to quickly throw it out there. This isn't my answer, but I'm just going to say that Zip Zap Boying is the best game ever, and you can adapt it for any theme, and you can just, like... You know, I've done EastEnders Star Zip Zap Boying. I was directing a youth production of Honk last year, so we made it like a Honk version. You can just, you can do whatever you like with it. It's adaptable. It's great for any age group. And it's, you know, you can do, it's great. So going to throw that out there. But my favourite game, and actually this is more of an experience that I had than the actual game itself, is a game called, um, uh, it's called, it's called, it's called like Fox and Sheep or Wolves and Wolves, the Wolf and the Sheep or something. And basically right. what happens is... I read this game in a book, for ch- like a children's drama game book. And I was like, oh, this looks like a really nice, lovely, you know, fun little warm up game for like, I think I was teaching nine, nine year olds. And basically the game is you get the group in a circle holding hands. So you can't play this at the moment, unfortunately. You get this in a circle holding hands and one person stands out of the circle of the ring and the person standing outside is the, the wolf. And then you nominate one person in the circle to be the sheep. And when you say go, all they have to do is work as a team so that the wolf has to try and tag the sheep. And they have to, like, move the circle around so that they can't get tagged. Have I explained? Does that make sense? Can you picture? Yeah, it does. It does make sense. And yeah. the way that I thought it was going to be was like, ah, oh, you know, the wolf goes to the right. So the circle moves a bit to the right. The wolf goes to the left. So <laughs> the circle moves a bit to the left. What actually happened happens when you play this game is you say go and chaos happens like they were like running around like dragging kids arms out of their sockets basically people ended up on the floor like the wolf they're just man and no one's letting go and they're just like it's like a health and i was just the first time i did it i was stood there like oh my god this is i'm gonna get fired this is a terrible health and safety issue but it's just hilarious and they all scream they all scream and they're like ah no ah and then eventually the wolf tags the sheep. It's the most fun I've ever had as a teacher watching people play a game. Can you imagine playing it's, that as an adult? I think kids, because kids have no sense of health, they don't have a sense of health and safety or risk assessment. True, but I think adults, and I don't know if I'm speaking from experience, not sure, I feel like adults can get competitive. So, And yes. I, th- I think that that overrides any sense of health and safety. And it's like, we're going to win. We're going to beat the wolf or whatever, whatever it was. Yes. And I'm not very competitive unless it comes to drama games. And then I get very competitive, particularly if it's like, if it is like Zip Zap Boying or like Wah. Like, I love Wah. Wah, 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 Wah. We talked in the series about freelancing 
and mm. about managing multiple jobs. And I want to get to a point, I'd love to get to a point in my career where I was gaining all of my income from just making theatre. That would be like, you know, that's obviously the dream. The fact is, and over the last year, I've really discovered this, some of the top theatre, particularly theatre directors in this country are not earning anywhere near their full-time income from directing. So teaching makes up that, you know, a lot of what people do in particular because probably because it's flexible and it generally pays quite well as a freelance freelance teacher. But that's like that's like the goal, I guess the goal in a way. Um, although also the idea of making theatre full-time also sounds really exhausting and I think it's good to have creative breaks. But besides the fact that I do really enjoy teaching and working with young people and actually, and actually that's I think probably going to be a really core part of like my practice as a theatre maker as well anyway. Teaching pays quite well compared to a lot of kind of theatre admin job so so before lockdown my general like week was like three days of teaching maybe two days of admin operational jobs maybe three and then basically I was making theatre as much as I could in my time around that which was really exhausting to be honest um and because teaching because teaching has quite a good day rate so for example you can basically work three days a week of teaching which is the equivalent to five days a week of working like a minimum wage job full time. Mm. And so the way that I kind of go about managing my week, because as an early career theatre maker, you are doing so much work for free. Even if you're being paid for the project that you're going to be doing, there's there's so much, you know, there's networking and meetings and like so much stuff you have to do before a project gets to a place where it's got money behind it. And for me, teaching three days a week particularly at the moment in lockdown where my admin jobs have just disappeared completely. Um, but actually it's given me quite a nice balance because it means I then have the rest of my week to do work for free. But I, I kind of I kind of lie to myself and I'm like, well, I'm technically being paid for that because I'm being paid for three days of work that is a bit like the equivalent of five days of work on minimum wage. So I'm just, mm. do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, for sure. So that's, I don't know what my point I was going to make was. Um but in terms of people that are early career and maybe like directors or writers or um, or actors, I just, yeah, teaching is a really great way of being able to essentially afford to live. But at the same time, there is a huge amount of prep and planning involved um, and all that kind of stuff as well. So last year and this year, I did like five months where I did one day a week of an admin job for a theatre. And I was working in a in a, um, a participation department, so it was on like community projects, and it was one day a week of admin in a venue that I do love as well, which helped, and a team that I've worked with before and really like. But it was so nice having one day a week where I knew that I would just go into work, you know, start at ten, log off at six, and be done. Mm. And it was really like mentally that was that's that was really great. The, the year that I worked at the spherical building. Um, for goodness sake. <laughs> I just want I just want to point out to the listeners, like it's not like we're under any contract and not meant like I don't think anyone's gonna worry about so, it. No. But it's been an inside joke with with Joseph and I for a couple of years. That... Right. When you start doing a drama degree at university <laughs> when you've just spent a year at the Globe and people are like, What have you been doing for the last year? You just tell them you've you know, you've been doing it. And you you know, it ends up I think I used to try and not tell people and then it would come out and it became a running gag that it was 
that I'd always meant that there wouldn't be a day that would go by where it wouldn't come up. Oh my god, especially especially when we lived together that first year, you'd be like, did I did I ever mention to you that I because, worked at the Globe? Because it was a year worth of it was a year worth of stories and life, you know. And I'd be like, yes, Joseph, I I know you did. We've we've actually been there together a few times actually, but and you've mentioned the thing that it. was really great about working in the <laughs> spherical building where they do the Dead Man plays um, are that <laughs> <laughs> it was having a nine to five job it was the most free to free time I've ever had in my life I'm like you know I just I'd done my A-levels and that was you know busy and stressful generally speaking it was Monday to Friday with a couple of Saturday mo- well most Saturday mornings I had all of my evenings free I had most of my weekends free I, met, I did loads of theatre projects that year totally unpaid all like you know with amateur 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 drama and community projects and things but I had so much structure in my life and I actually really, like, miss that and really crave that sometimes. Um, and I think that I've got some friends who are writers who have full-time jobs and then write in the evenings and weekends. And annoyingly, as a director, I think it's it's a lot harder to do that because, because writing is quite often... Well, not always, obviously, but a lot of writing is solo and is in your own time, whereas directing is being with other people. And so... Um, Having a free schedule is a bit of an advantage, I guess. Yeah, I've got I've got a friend who's a director, and she um, like she'll do like on off. So she'll do a project maybe for six months being a director, and then she'll completely stop and do a, an administrative job for six months or however long, or do a short or do a temp job in order to like repro like re like cleanse her cleanse herself or whatever. Okay, um, Hannah Montana. Wow, no, that is really interesting. She told me that she did it for reasons of like you know wanting to kind of. Yeah, I guess, you know, directing is really stressful. It's really time-consuming. Making theatre is really time-consuming. It's creatively draining. I'm just so tired. I'm so tired. I need a break. <laughs> um, it's like um, working 24-7. Like, <laughs> for, for, was it for two whole days? How break? long was it until we were going to crack out the Gemma Collins Gemma impressions? Collins. Like, how did you get into theatre? Because it, it came, I don't want to say later, but, you know, it came a bit later than me and maybe some other people, I suppose, in, in your I life. Just, I was, um, I came out of the womb doing jazz hands. And, um, no. Oh, maybe earlier than most people then. Never mind. I'm going to answer the question that we ask, because I think it's helpful to our guests at the beginning, which is, what is your childhood dream job, right? Because growing up, yeah, yeah. when I was little, and I'm talking about, like, when I was five or six i really liked watching films and i loved watching the wizard of oz right it was one of my favorite films <gasps> that, as a kid. that's my favorite and favorite we favorite had, like, film. The vhs tape and at the end of the tape there was like a behind the scenes bit and i realized i was almost more interested in that than i was in the film sometimes i was fascinated by like all the stuff about the makeup and how the witch like went down under the trap door I was just like fascinated by it. And I really wanted from like the age of five to be a film director. I was like, that's what I want to do, right? Mm. At the age of five. I remember telling my dad, my, my I'm very lucky. My parents are very holistic and were very much like, my dad, you know, my dad was a hairdresser and is now a hippie <laughs> for want of a better world. He's now a spiritualist. Um, and 
I was going to say, is Hippie like I a job know. title? His actual <laughs> job title is Spiritual Hairdresser. You can check out his website, garywiner.co.uk, it needs a bit of updating. Um, and my mum has had lots of different jobs, but she did start off as a, like, she was on the tracks to be a dancer or an actor when she was younger. So they were always like, follow your dreams. And I was like, well, my dream is to be film director, so I want to do that. Similarly, growing up, I used to go to the theatre probably like once a year. Like once a year we would go, usually for my birthday, to see, to see a show, to see a show in the West End. So I remember <laughs> seeing The Lion King, Joseph. The old version, not the new one that they did. Um, who did who did you see in Joseph? Can, who was Joseph? I was so young, I'm just I curious. Can tell you, I was probably about six, so I can't remember. Do you reckon it was Philip Schofield? It would have been around 2003, I reckon. Oh, would that have been? No, that wouldn't have been Lee no, 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 so Mead because before, that was much later. It wasn't. The, I don't even think it was that production. I think it was the production that came before that or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, would it have been like the night? Anyway, that doesn't matter. Whoever it, whoever it was, um, probably they probably gave me some kind of sexual sorry. awakening. Whoever it was, um, although not as much as Dottie Osman did in that film. Did you see though Carol Baskin on Dancing with the Stars to the song "The Eye of the Tiger"? Because that was just glorious, so, gloriously bad as well. Terrible I've... dancer. I haven't, I haven't like watched it, watched it, but the I've clip, seen yeah. clips of it on TikTok and stuff. And I, because I haven't watched Tiger King, sorry, I know everyone was doing that in March. I just haven't watched it. Is she, is she potentially a murderer? Is that the whole? <laughs> so she, her, I think I, I did watch Killed it. Killed her, but... husband, whacked so him. her husband I don't know. like mysteriously disappeared. And she fed him and to the people ti- think, fed him and to the tigers, I think she had, right? I think she had a meat grinder or something. So I think people thought that she meat grinded him and then fed him to the tigers. I've got an idea. Maybe I could become a director. So I'm thinking a new version of Sweeney Todd, yes. but Carol Baskin. But oh. I mean, that would be genius. That would be genius casting anyway. Can you imagine Carol Baskin as Mrs. <laughs> Lover in Sweeney Todd? Well, not necessarily her in it, but the production um, heavily hints to Tiger yeah. King. So... I'm just saying, if anybody's you out there, Sondheim Society, what do you, you think? Do that at, like Batsy Art Centre, or like, or like maybe the Yard. I reckon they'd be up for that. Yeah. Or somewhere I don't know. Um, um, Vault Festival. Vault Fe- that could Vault be a Festival, fun parody version. Anyways, yeah. So you went and you watched loads of I watched, shows. Watched. I watched my show Mary Poppins, Billy Elliot when I was nine. That was beautiful. All the things that made me gay. And I had a video. I saved up money for my birthday to buy a video camera. So that I could start like doing film. Oh. I always remember when I got my first, I saved up money for a laptop when I was like 10 and I went into PC world. He was like, what do you want your laptop for? And I was like, I want it so I can make movies. And he just laughed at me and I was like, rude. That's rude. I thought I wanted to do that. And and then my cousin growing up was part of a lot of youth theatres. And so I used to always see her in shows, right? I just always, and I just, I really loved it, but I had no interest in singing or dancing at all as a child. I was like, don't want to do that far too self-conscious not interested so the long of the short is that when i was 12 i just turned 12 it was like my 12th birthday there was a, a local drama group that my babysitter who was three years older than me who is now one of my best friends chloe um went to and i got told they don't do any singing and dancing really they're mainly like it's mainly like acting so i joined that group it was two pound a week pay as you go mega cheap and i mean i joined that's yeah. so good because they were they were a voluntary run community youth theatre, it meant that they didn't 
they weren't commercial, they weren't professional, and it meant there was a slightly more familial feel to it. So, for example, I don't think any of the teachers were DBS checked, which is, you know, we, I mean, you know, we actually did DBS checked eventually. But, but yeah, it yeah. meant that, like, once a year we did a pantomime where the adults and the kids would come together. It was that kind of community drama. And I just, I loved it. And I suddenly loved singing and dancing because everyone was kind of bad. <laughs> so it didn't really matter. Um, yeah. And then I got roped into doing a school production and I got cast as Tenardier and Les Mis. And at this point, I'd also got bored of film. But I just, I loved, I loved live performance. I used to, we used to do a festival every year where I'd get to do improvisation in front of a live audience. And I just really loved it. My, my drama teacher said that when I started acting, I used to do this thing where I would make a joke and then like look at the audience for the response. And <laughs> she had to teach me not to do that. Oh my um, God, you were the original Fleabag? I was the original, yeah, but yeah. Um, so I did that and then I was very lucky because it was a community drama group, right? I think I've always been, people have always said to me that I'm like an old man in a young man's mm-hmm. body. And I loved organising things. Like when I was little, I loved organising projects. Like, you know, that was always really exciting. You know, why do you want a laptop? Partly to make films, partly for access to Excel. <laughs> And so, and I kind of just, you know, I looked at what the directors did for like the couple of pantomimes that I'd done. And I was like, I just want to be in charge. I want to be, I just want to be doing that. And so when I got old enough, so I say old enough, I think I was 13. I asked if I could like volunteer as, a, as an assistant in the younger group. Mm. And so I did that. And then I ended up just directing their end of term show. Like it was a musical. It was called Splash. It had loads of cheesy jokes in it. And I probably did a lot of shouting at children and a lot of I'm the adult here and I'm in charge. But it actually went really well. And we ended up putting it forward for a festival the next year. And it won some very low, low key awards. But like it, it, you know, it was responded to well. And before I knew it, I was just directing. I was just directing. I was just doing stuff. I think when I was 15, I directed the, the adult pantomime that year. Um, and then I did a farce. I still enjoyed performing at this point, but I just really loved it. And at the same time, I was doing things like like Watford Palace ran a young producer scheme. So I joined that when I was 16. I was desperate to work in a theatre and they were the only theatre in travelling distance that I could get to on the bus. And so I wanted to be an usher. That's what I wanted to do, like work front of house. Cause I was like, that's how you get in. And I like, I never used to get the bus into town. I got like the bus into town with my like CV. And my friend said to me, she was like, they don't advertise jobs on the website there. You have to basically just, you have to know someone and you have to go in. I went in and handed in my CV and the woman at the desk was like, we don't take CVs. And I was like, I've just come all the way to Watford <laughs> for this. And do you know what I did, Daniela? I, I then emailed their, their like customer service email address and I was like, I want a job, give me a job, please. Um, and then I volunteered for a festival they were running. I literally did two days of volunteering and off the back of that got offered an ushering job because they liked me from that. And that's where my that's where like that happened happened. And that theatre I've now had a working relationship with for seven years on and off and gave me so many opportunities and they now support me as an artist as well. They gave me my first my first professional commission to make a show, which has been postponed because of COVID. I don't know if that answered the question really, and I've probably skipped a lot of stuff that's maybe not very but it's but it's but... true like you like i think for both of us and i think also for most of our guests they probably have just like edited down i don't even think i did a very good job at editing it down one of my like not regrets but like <laughs> i was so determined from when i was quite young that this is Get what i deep. wanted to do that I really didn't listen to the advice of like, keep your options open. For example, when we were picking GCSEs, which feels like such a long time ago now, 
It was. I, some schools now you have to take geography or history. Like it's like a, a lot of schools you have to take one or the other. My school at the time you didn't. And so I didn't take either. I took IT. And I don't get me wrong. I really, you know, I did really well in that GCSE, but it was not useful for me. I should have done history because I was like that actually, oh. I didn't realise at the time how much history would be important for me as a theatre maker. And and doing the degree that we both did as well, it felt like it was, you know. For sure. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I feel like a lot of humanity subjects go really hand in hand, don't they? Because I remember when I did my A-levels, I did AS history and I did drama as well. And some of the stuff we were learning, it was the same thing in both lessons. You know, 16-year-old me, I was like, oh my God, look at my subjects, like really mixing right. together. <laughs> my best GCSE, and this always makes me laugh, was physics. Like I got my best grade in physics. So random. I got like full marks on the papers because I because I just learnt the syllabus I didn't understand any of it I just learnt the syllabus right. and my worst grade was in English literature which is the thing I then went on to study so all you know if that I mean if anything proves that the education system is for cut that is it that I got full marks in physics I would not ask me to like change a plug like change a wire in a plug um, I don't think that's a physics then, thing know, though Han I think that's a practical thing I don't maybe yeah maybe. physics no is... you have to learn about wires like live wires and things oh. it's definitely something I remember memorising I was also on the gifted and talented register for design and technology and like woodwork. That's so random. And I can't sort of save my life. So very random. Is that, um, yeah, I'd, let's not talk about that, but I could definitely do a whole bloody episode about like why gifted and talented lists and all those sorts of courses honestly, are a load of honestly. bollocks and awful. And I was never on it for English. I was never on it for English, but I was on it for d and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Um, d and T. Um, that's so funny. We just called it D-T. Design and technology. I know. It just, oh, D-T. just D-T. It sounds like you're saying D&D. <laughs> Something that this podcast and speaking to people has made me, um, obviously, I, you know, you have to be happy with the choices that you've made because you've made them and you should be. Absolutely. Those. But like you get people like Jess, for example, oh. from episode one, who has a degree in like computer, computer science. science and a master's, but also and a master's, but also knows an absolute load about literature and theatre and is going to have a really incredible career as a theatre producer and and, you know similarly people like F.A. who we interviewed in episode two yeah you know fingers crossed you know she's now you know she's now graduated from Mountview and unfortunately this is a very difficult time to be an actor but again very incredibly talented actor um but she has a law degree and she could turn around and say actually I'm gonna I'm gonna be a lawyer I do wonder if, like, I was so blinkered on, like, I love the arts, I love the arts. It's that thing where you go, should this thing stay as a hobby? Similar thing, like, at, at sixth form, my psychology teacher was really pushing me to do psychology at university. She literally said to me when she asked me at parents' evening, in front of my parents, she was like, what do you want to do at university? I was like, oh, I want to do drama and English. I think maybe I want to be a teacher, which is funny. I think I'd be a terrible teacher, but that was the thing at the time. Um, and she was like, no, I think you'd be selling... I think she said something like, you'd be selling yourself short. She was basically saying it's not a good choice, which you shouldn't say as a teacher. I had the exact same... But I had the exact same advice from both my... I, I thought I wanted to be a teacher at school um, in, be- in between wanting to direct The Wizard of Oz and then going to theatre. Um, and both my English and my drama teachers said to me, don't be a teacher. Yeah. She ba- Yeah, she basically... I don't think it was even necessarily about the teacher thing because she's a teacher, but it was more. it was more that like don't do drama in English because I don't know is it that whole thing that the arts can be a hobby but can psychology be a hobby do, do you know what I mean yeah but no I think it's I think it's really interesting I am um, I wouldn't say it was a regret but I 
very much was like English and drama from from choosing my GCSEs were the subjects that I loved the most. Oh, for sure, yeah. Even though they weren't the ones I was the best at, probably because of my teachers. I'd really, particularly my, my English teacher was really fantastic and I didn't read very much as a kid and I still don't read very much and I just, but she just brought like, we just used to, I don't know, they just felt like life lessons. We used to sit around a table and eat chocolate and like chat about King Lear or whatever and it was great. But um, I, I don't think in hindsight I should have done drama A level. And I, you get into these conversations a lot where a lot of schools cut drama A-level because they say it's not a useful subject. And I really struggle because I'm like, I, as m- I, I always defend it and always want to defend it. But actually, I would have done better in terms of my academic record had I have done maths A-level or had I have done... Um, something like that. <laughs> or had I maybe done, like, physics. But I still would have been able to have done the things that I'm... I'm doing this that is true and I have thought that as well but you have to think like would I god this sounds so cheesy but would you have been happy or would you have felt so pressured by doing maths or another academic subject like there's something I guess there's like something so joyous about studying something that you love so much even if you can do it outside of a syllabus I I don't know like yeah I, I had a friend who did like theology at university went to a really good university and did theology not it wasn't religious in the slightest um and i think he wrote his like dissertation on like fiddler on the roof or on like religion in musical theater and it it hadn't occurred to me the overlap of subjects you could have like 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 jess who did a computer science ma but wrote their entire thesis or research project on the edinburgh fringe festival but obviously i also don't think regrets i don't it's not about regrets it's just about thinking about (laughs) thinking about your life choices but even if we are still in the industry, we can still make choices now that can help round us, potentially. Yeah, like the web design course <laughs> that I might, <laughs> I might do one day. What other things have come up this series that are really interesting, do you think? Um, a lot of people we've talked to have mentioned a teacher or an adult when they were younger who really helped them get into the arts or really encouraged them or was kind of their starting point. And I think that that is really important. Which actually follows on from that thing I just said that my yeah. drama and English teachers, I love drama at school. That wasn't an issue. I would have liked drama. I probably would have liked drama regardless of the teacher. Yeah. Um, but I really loved my drama teacher. It was a running joke that like, I, she's definitely not going to be listening to this ever. I do have her on Facebook though, and we do occasionally like each other's posts. Um, but she always had like, like the gay kid in the year was always like, was always her like, what do you call it? Her like minion. Someone else said that, not me. Like I would always just want to like chill with her on like lunch breaks yeah. and things, and like be in the drama classroom. And then two years below me, there was another boy who I was chatting with the other day actually having a little catch up with who said that he basically did the same thing like after I left and then a boy two years below him she just always seems to have like the gay boy in the year just like just like but it's true the gay gay boys always I think go for their English go for like <laughs> what's the word um like warm to their English or or drama teachers I think um and I just I don't know I was very hard working as a student and she liked that and I loved the subject and I think she knew that I cared about it, and so that was brilliant. Um, she was the one that convinced me to audition for Les Mis, and which you know led to my love of Les Mis, if nothing else. Um, 
And my English teacher at school, um, she was called Miss Lovett, and I had her pretty much for the full seven years. There was like one year where I had someone else and she weren't so great. Um, but like she was, when I was in year seven, she was like the scariest. She had long, dark ginger hair. She looked very scary. Her and I, by the time we got to A-level, were like chatting about, chatting about um, like sex and drugs and Fifty Shades of Grey. Like it was, she was the kind of teacher that if you didn't do your homework, she wouldn't give you a detention. She would just be, she would just kind of say like, you know, she'd say, why didn't you do it? You'd be like, I didn't have time. She'd be like, well, you're just not going to know that stuff then. And you're not going to do very, you know, you're not going to do well in the exam. But yeah, sorry. Did you have a teacher at school? So um, I went to dance classes from the ages of like four to like just before I turned 16. Like the longest period in that time, I had a dance teacher called Miss Angela. You always call your dance teacher Miss yes. in their first name. She's a really tiny woman. And when I say tiny, I mean like my brother is five years younger than me. And they were, he was getting taller than her. Um, really tiny woman, short hair, glasses, um, a bit older. I don't know her age, but, you know, she'd lived life. She'd been in, like, Madame Butterfly and things like that. I'm not painting a good picture, but she was so scary and she was so straight. And whenever she did her hair for, for festivals and exams and, and dance performances, she would she would brush it so hard that your scalp would feel like it was being she pulled out. She sounds like out. every dance teacher I've ever heard about. She sounds like such a cliche dance teacher, but I cannot explain to you just how incredible she was. Like she was, and it's such a cliche to say she was so strict because she cared, but it was so true. I remember at one point, and I didn't really know this because I, I was maybe like like 11 or something. She came to my parents' house with the, the owner of the dance company and she had printed out these like prospectuses for like uh, places like Masters Performing Arts College and like Stella Mann School of Dance and stuff like that. And she was like, you know, maybe she should be, why does everyone want me to be a teacher? She was like, maybe she should be a dance teacher or here's some colleges to look at. I was like 11. I was not like a gifted dancer by any means. Like I couldn't do the splits, I was never on point. But the fact that she seemed to like care so much and want to like push some of her students out of like this small, the small town that we grew up in. I don't know, just like looking back on that, I'm like, wow. That is really important. In terms of things that people have said on the podcast that have really made me go, that's so important, or like that's a really useful tip for me. Um, Ellie talked about this, and Alistair talked about this, and I think other people have talked about it maybe in a slightly different way. Um but that idea that opportunities won't necessarily just come to you. Um, you know, Alistair, who's, who runs WoLab, which I think is a hugely successful company. You know, they've only been around for about three years. They're now doing a, a, a collaboration with Payne's Plow, who are one of my favourite theatre companies and, like, huge. Um, and Alistair is in a very senior job. Um, similarly, you know, Ellie is working one of the you know best known theatre companies working for Nehi and those opportunities came because they didn't wait for someone to open a door for them they knocked on doors they emailed people they got their own funding they beefed up their CVs Esther talked about that as well and they made their own work and then they started being mm, given opportunities yeah, yeah. and then you know the, the work kind of follows um, but that just that really that really stuck with me about the importance of not not waiting around I think a hundred percent and like fa said it as well talking about like as an actor like maybe try writing and creating your own work don't just sit around waiting for a character that's perfect for you like maybe make that character and make the blueprint yourself
Do you have any projects you want to plug? I don't think I have any projects. I'm. You've got your your you've got your bookstagram account. Yeah, I have. I I've been like reading more during lockdown, and I have a separate book Instagram where I just chat about books. Sometimes it's at Peachy Keen Book Club, which sounds like it's a book club. It's not. It's just me. And also, I must mention Glee Cap Podcast, which I'm co-producer of. Connor, who is our dear friend, he presents it and he chats with a new guest every week about an episode of Glee in order. So it's super fun. I've now watched all of Glee in lockdown for the first time. Um, it was a ride, and I would not like to repeat it. <sighs> Do you, ha- do you have any projects? So I, I was making a show called I Want My Foreskin Back uh, for Watford Fringe Festival. It was a very scary project for me because I don't really perform anymore and it was a performance project. But that has now been sadly withdrawn due to COVID concerns. Um, but I am developing that project and it's going to be more of a long-term thing now. So that's really exciting. Other than that, I'm working on some long-term projects at the moment. So I've over lockdown been doing a lot of dramaturgical work with writers who are all really incredible. We are currently at that stage of trying to get things funded so that we can get them off the ground. I have been, uh, I've been commissioned by a company called Fly High Stories um, to write a play that children can act out at home with their families over Christmas about queerness and Hanukkah. I'm not gonna lie, it's quite niche. (laughs) So I'm currently writing that. I can't talk about this particular project and I really want to and it got commissioned in December last year and then postponed so I can't mention it but it is a really exciting piece of outdoor queer family theatre that I am making with Alice Hope Wilson um, who is a friend and collaborator. I am so so excited to be making the show. I'm gutted that it's been postponed but watch this space. Uh, just to say thank you everybody thank you everybody if you've listened this far you are incredible and like this far in the series this far in the episode yeah we really appreciate the listens like we know that what we're doing is really niche but it's just nice whenever we get a message or a tweet saying people are enjoying episodes because we just want our guests to be heard more than anything do you know what i mean apart from this last episode where we have just talked about ourselves please validate Um, us but yeah and we are fingers crossed hoping for a new series um which we haven't given too much thought to yet but um we have, I mean, we've got a list of like 60 guests on it that we want to talk to. So we're going to have to do another series. If you liked what you heard, please follow us on Twitter at NotAnotherTHTR, on Instagram at NotAnotherTheatrePodcast, on Facebook. Give us a, a review on Apple Podcasts if you can. And that would be amazing. I don't think we need to record a special anything. We can just do it like this. Yeah, thanks everyone. <laughs> Anyone knows how to get funding for an independent podcast about theatre as well? Hit us up. Let us know. Yeah, genuinely, please. Okay. Okay, bye, love you, bye. And then we'll play the music. Which, how's it go? It goes... And then they bring in the trumpet. Yeah.